Hello, Conversations with Dwyer listeners. If you are enjoying the podcast, but you want a little bit more, you could become a Patreon subscriber. And for $5 a month, you can get bonus content, bonus episodes, and a podcast that I create solely for Patreon, where I talk to comedians about the music that they like. And you get a pin that was created by Charlene Yee of the, the, the Conversations with Dwyer logo. So please, become a Patreon subscriber. The link is in my show notes under All Things Dwyer, or you can just go to themattdwyer.com. Thank you, and enjoy this episode of Conversations with Dwyer. Conversations with Dwyer. I'm Matt Dwyer. This is a music podcast. And speaking of music, that song that played me in is called Pre-California. That is from the album Fountain Fire, which came out 2019 on Drag City. And that is by Bill McKay, who is my guest today. And he's also had an album come out in 2021, also on Drag City, called Keys, that he did with Nathan Bowles. And uh, let me tell you this. Both of those albums are really goddamn good. And if you haven't listened to Mr. Bill McKay's music before, all links to his work is in the show notes there, as well as he's got a piece in the uh, in the book that came out by Perpetual Doom. I'm trying to find the title of the name of this book. Navigation to Nowhere. I actually thought of that. Didn't have to look at notes. Navigation to Nowhere book that Perpetual Doom put out with uh, Keddy Wampus Press. Uh, Perpetual Doom is a great label that uh, also I've had a number of their guests on the show, and they do a cassette tape of the month club. Uh, Grady Strange, who was on, I believe, last week, is uh, put out his album on Perpetual Doom. Anyway, check out Perpetual Doom. Great, great work by Lou over there. But uh, back to Bill McKay. This is a really great episode. Um we talk a lot about Chicago. I would call Bill a Chicago legend. I don't know if he would agree with that, but this is the case. And he's also a poet, a great writer, great musician, and I really greatly enjoyed this conversation. As I said, all links to his work are in the show notes. Please buy and support music. Don't just stream. It's important that these artists get paid for their work and eat, because you know who doesn't pay? Goddamn Spotify. That's who. Not a Unless you get like a million streams and then you might be able to buy a ham sandwich at a diner, a cheap diner. Um, also, if you're a fan of Bill McKay's and you like his music and you're here for the first time, thank you for listening. And I've had a lot of guests. Uh, Bill did an album with Riley Walker, uh, who has been on the show. Go to themattdwyer.com or conversationswithdwyer.com and you could look at all the guests I've had on the show. I'm like almost at 260 episodes, so there's been a wide variety of guests. So please check out my older episodes. And uh, uh, there's also, if you're a Patreon subscriber, Bill and I talked for over an hour. So the additional footage or the full unedited conversation is on Patreon. I know I plug Patreon before the show, but it helps... Uh, keep the show live patreon subscribers because if you may have noticed there's rarely any ads on the show so patreon helps keep the show alive and you get bonus content you get a pin by charlene Yee, and uh, all that stuff so please support the podcast and please enjoy my conversation with bill mckay 
Yeah, it's funny. I bet you people, which I think happens a lot, people who are, you know, uh, consumers of culture, people who are not in doing showbiz themselves, don't understand how often you get thrown these slide balls or whatever you call it. And uh, things that last minute, you know, that people, I think, assume often that all productions are sort of very well planned and everything goes as planned. And yeah. this is kind of common where you get something, uh, you know, like that happening. Um, just thinking of, you know, weird equipment things or all of a sudden you're not going to be able to use this thing or, oh, there's no projector. So we're not going to be able to do the film, whatever it is, you know. <laughs> So. Did you like? Do you have you learned to adapt? Because I used to like it would just pan. I'm panic mode about almost everything. Like if my morning smoothie doesn't go as planned, I'm like in a panic. Right. <laughs> I can kind of relate to that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I. <laughs> I mean, I feel. Yeah, I, my anxiety and you know panic uh, reservoir is fairly full generally. Um, <laughs> although, <laughs> although. <laughs> I, you know, to a lot of people, I think radiate this, or I'm told radiate this sort of Zen calm, you know, and I often calm other people. Um, so it's kind of like a mix, you know, and I think over the years I have found uh, ways to, or just it was very incremental, you know, my sort of uh, lessening of like stage fright, for example, which used to be really bad, you know, um, years ago. It's been like quite a few years that it haven't, hasn't been a, really a thing. And I've been pretty comfortable, you know, on stage and looking forward to it. But, uh, but still, yeah, I do get anxious about if details are going to go wrong, double checking everything, triple checking. And, um, but it's gotten, it's gotten better. You know, I, there was a time in the early days when, um, my wife would see me play and she would say, do you know, by the end of the set, you were facing the, your back was to the audience completely for like songs. <laughs> it was ridiculous. Was there uh yeah, but were you just like in the moment or were you just like, fuck these people? Sometimes, no, I think it was neither. I think I was just actually so shy, which is a weird thing, right? A paradox of you wanting to be on a stage and then you're so shy that you're, you eventually are trying to turn away from the people, from the burning intensity of their eyes. You know? <laughs> well, Miles supposedly did that a lot. Yeah, he did, but I thought his was sort of different. Have you seen some of those concerts like I just watched one recently where he was you know spending a lot of time like yeah circling around and his back to the audience have you seen that stuff I I've seen like clips I haven't watched whole concerts but I always thought like if you're leading a band you kind of want to be looking at the band oh yeah yeah maybe there was an element of that in it you know where he was like being the band leader by staying in touch with people visually and all of that you know because uh, he never, when the, the clips I've seen where he does that, he looks like he's kind of like, I don't care what's going on. Like, I'm in my world, we're making the music, and this is not a show per se. Like, I don't care what the people are visualizing oh, I, in a way. Yeah, I get that. Maybe. I, I don't, Miles didn't seem to give a fuck about much, really. <laughs> right. Did you read his his autobiography? No, I've been meaning to. It's been on the list for years, but I haven't gotten to it. It's, Did you? Yeah, and it's just pretty much like somebody transcribed him speaking because it's like motherfucker this, motherfucker that. Like it's, it's. I mean, it's poetry. It's great, but it's just like, yeah. There's so many great stories of him just not giving a fuck and telling people that he doesn't give a fuck, and it's just like, oh god, I wish, I wish I had half your confidence. I wish I had a quarter right. of that confidence. Yeah, I, I know what you're saying. There's just something protective about it. 
Yeah. But that's an interesting point. Something protective about it. Cause it is, it's like, are those just layers of defense that he had to put on over the years? Exactly. Yeah. I, I think that's a thing because I, I was reminded, you know, how you get, uh, curious sometimes to maybe reread, you know, a, a book from you read as a kid, or I get like that where I'll, I'll I want to read something. And partially I don't want to, cause if, if it has certain magic, I don't want to dispel that with a, the next reading. <laughs> <laughs> but most of them, <laughs> right. I know exactly. Most of them have been good. Yeah. I've and done, you, I've done you know that. that well, yeah, I've done that with films too, where I'm like, you gotta watch this. Like, if somebody I'm dating, and well, not anymore because I'm married, and that would be, well, you know, we're we're not we haven't had that agreement yet. <laughs> right. right. But I've even done it with with her, where uh, and I'm and then it's just like you're 15 minutes in, and you're like, oh, this is a piece of shit. Yeah, yeah, and you're like, man, I must have been something else, another state. <laughs> sometimes, like that's. <laughs> you know sometimes you're in the right mood or you're vulnerable or whatever it is so it speaks to you and 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 i you know which is interesting i it's yeah i guess absolutely yeah it was uh no go ahead oh i was just (laughs) (laughs) i I don't want to interrupt you (laughs) it's about you that's a good thing let Uh, let the interviewer saying like that's very interesting because i think also sometimes going back it's like you know, it can be a little unfair to the thing that had that magic because sometimes I think you are picking up, you know, these maybe poetic or magical things that aren't maybe necessarily to do with all the content of a movie, but a vibe that it captures, say, about a certain time, you know, or a certain time you're going through in your life in that that movie. Maybe you're a teenager and you see that movie and it does have these uh, special qualities, you know that uh, you soak up and then as an adult, it doesn't read the same way, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Do you ever go back? Cause I've gone back and tried to visit music that I didn't thought I didn't like, or that I really liked from, especially from my early twenties and sort of to re-examine to see where it's like, cause now I feel like I'm more knowledgeable and of course I'm old, so I don't want to <laughs> like, you know, can't listen to ministry like I used to. <laughs> <laughs> right right yeah totally but then you will go back to some things right and you'll discover stuff yeah and- like stuff i thought i didn't like and i think i i wasn't able to comprehend what they were doing yes yeah absolutely i think that's the other side of that coin that's kind of amazing because that's happened a few times where i was like oh i'll go back and read something even rock bios and stuff you know about hendrix or whatever and I'll be like, I'm going to revisit that. And when I do, I realize there's these significant sections of, you know, adult-oriented experience, not necessarily <laughs> sex, but that too, and other just things about, you know, having lived <laughs> and uh, maturity and stuff, things that you, or weird political situations or weird vibe situations with people that are in the books. And uh, I just clearly, when I was reading it as a 15-year-old or 17-year-old, I wasn't, you know, I was just kind of flying by that stuff. Yeah, and I was really attracted to like CD down and out type stuff. Uh, like, I mean, like somebody hit me to Bukowski in high school, which at the time Bukowski wasn't as legendary as he is now, and like that Jim Carroll and all those things. And now I'm like look back at like I that world is not. I guess because I've lived it a little. <laughs> like it's, it's like you're. I'm like this. There's nothing romantic about sleeping in your urine. <laughs> right, right. 
touche. <laughs> right, right. But you know, that's the funny thing. The same, the same, I think. And there's there'll be the parts of things like that that I'm still attracted to. And yeah, the others that are just like, oh, this is purely kind of degrading or, you know, um, the de- decadence for, you know, nobody's benefit, maybe. But uh <laughs> <laughs> but I, I still hold fast to the some romantic notions of those kind of, you know, like there's a beauty in waste in even wasted lives, like people say. And um there's something about yeah, the same, Jim Carroll, those those authors. And uh I remember around the time when I was uh connecting a lot of those people, like Jim Carroll and Lou Reed and and those kind of things. Um I was over at someone's house and and they were playing, um, I'd never seen the album or heard Lou Reed, uh, what's it, Animal? Uh, what is I thinking of? The 743, uh, the live one. Oh, I don't. I, like black, has black lipstick oh, on. Oh, yeah, yes, yes. A rock and roll animal. Oh, yes. Rock and roll animal. And I was so transfixed with that cover. It was so dangerous. And I just stared at it for like, you know, an hour as we listened to this album. And uh I thought of all that. And so, you know, that's when I was sort of getting into that book, Edie, about Edie Sedgwick and, and all that. And um, yeah, in any case, I have a hard time shaking those romantic uh, feelings and no- notions because there was so much about that that uh, time when I was absorbing it and the times it was about, you know, that, that yeah, was um, it's, it's, beauty, you know, it was yeah. so meaty. And not and, to diminish any of the artists I mentioned as as artists, like I don't mean like oh you know Bukowski just wrote about beer oh, shows. Sure. <laughs> yeah. I mean he has some amazing passages that are just like I'm in awe of. And and Jim Carroll was, I mean I I was totally. I, I was just astounded like boy you fucking fifteen and you're in the Paris Review go fuck you like fuck you <laughs> like, yeah. right. Yeah. I'm 52 and I still struggle putting sentences together. <laughs> <laughs> you were, but uh, you write poetry, do you not? And you were attracted to. I, po- I, I do, yeah. I'm, I'm still trying to get into into the with the <laughs> people as well. Um, have you? But, uh, have I you, do write. Yeah, have I'm you working seen, on a book now. Are you yeah. of, solely of poetry? Yeah. Yep. It's a. Uh, it's been in the works for a bit, and it's you know it's been a struggle you know, as far as figuring out how to get it out there. And I have some people who are interested, so I'm really psyched about that. But, uh, yeah, do you still write as well? Are you writing? I've, you know, it's funny because I've returned to poetry like about a year or two ago. And it was right before I brought the podcast back. And it was because I felt my brain getting very mushy. Like I wasn't uh, stimulating myself. And I was like very caught up in a lot of, horrible life things like just like <clears throat> I lost my way so to speak a bit and yeah. so I was like I need to something to spark and so I went into poetry and I've actually started writing poetry again uh not enough because I'm trying to but it anyway it's I was gonna go on a total tangent about my existence <laughs> but it's like it's it's like not to sound cliche but it does really like enrich and feed your soul and your mind. And it's like, I, it's weird to me that poetry was such a respected and like, like, you know, fucking Ginsburg would be a bestseller. I'm like, what, where, what happened? Yeah, it is. It's a really fascinating, like occurrence. I have my theories on it. Um, but I, 
you know, especially, which is obvious, I guess, to a lot of people now, but uh, especially the idea that, you know, it was sort of subsumed by popular music, especially once popular music became more and more serious and became, uh, yeah, likely read and Bob Dylan and the Lennon McCartney and so on and Nina Simone and like people writing about serious stuff that popular song hadn't always touched on before or had just kind of touched on, you know, in a tangential kind of way. So, and I think that a lot of it was became like the people's poetry went into song, but I, I too find that fascinating that that was such a huge change. I mean, you had, um, you know, T.S. Eliot, I think it was in 1958, he read at the university of Minnesota. And uh, I read that there was a sellout crowd. There was 19,000 people there. Holy shit. That's crazy. And granted he was a God of poetry at the time, you know, but still, and then you had Yevstashenko in Russia was reading for, you know, stadiums of people. And, uh, and yeah, popular, like you're su suggesting this poetry books, you know, would be a, a very popular book, you know, by someone, um, various books were super popular. And, and so, uh, yeah, it's a strange, it's strange not to have that, but like, it's such a powerful art form. Yeah. I do think you're right about, and I never thought of that, but like Dylan and, and those people whose lyrics were very beyond what what we had seen i mean cole porter was great with lyrics but he certainly yeah. wasn't <laughs> he, he was talking awesome. about yeah but he he never touched on war <laughs> right. or, or the human condition really yeah no he didn't he didn't have a desolation row or a day in the life <laughs> quite you know <laughs> <laughs> or a heroin. <laughs> but yeah, I wonder. Yeah. But do you do you have any theories of why? Because I do feel it's making some sort of resurgence. I talk to a lot of people who also write poetry, or I've. Uh, I just seem it's. I seem to yeah. see it more. And even Sonny Smith, his label's putting out a a record of a poet, which I'm like, and he's like, I might lose my shirt on this. I'm like, fuck it, oh. that's a great thing. Great. Yeah, that's awesome. No, I do know what you're talking about. There does seem to be a resurgence uh, of that. And I've noticed it too. And what's kind of giving it a, me a hope on that level is uh, a lot of the younger people who are getting into these poets. I don't really know who, who have like sold, they're selling really well, you know, and, um, and I've glanced at it and it's not always for me what they're writing, but uh, they're doing poetry and it's, it's pretty amazing because they are capturing a lot of, uh, Young people, especially, is what I notice. But but hopefully, like it's coming back for all ages, right? Like, yeah. I wonder if it has anything to do with sort of of it being in a very transitional and tumultuous era. If there's any sort of connection to that. Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting question. Um, I would, off the bat, just think that the answer is yes. Um, because it seems like so many things are in question now and we're questioning lots of stuff and people are looking at things they might've passed by. I get that sense, you know, uh, looking at yeah. in their own lives and, and things they might've passed by and considering other people's they passed by for sure. Um, so I wonder if that's, it's part of that, you know, if it's like, but I don't know what's uh, I'd be curious to figure out what's fueling it, you know, like what the entry point is into people getting more interested in, in poetry as a thing. Yeah. Cause it's, it went down so far where there was just, you never talked, heard from people talking about the great, you know, Wallace Stevens poem they just read or, um, or anything like that. Yeah. You know? I forget who I was talking to and, but they were, we were also talking about like the poems that you see in the New Yorker, which are kind of 
you know, Ivy League elitist, and it's not <laughs> it's nothing again, nothing against those artists, but it's like it. I've always been more attracted to people that I can relate to. It's like, I can't relate to you guy in the Ivy League, like, or New Yorker. It's, yeah. it seems uh, maybe that's class. There's a class divide. Yeah, maybe there is. I, I do think that's, that's a really potent, like, you know, idea because one thing, um, if you look at people who, um, go back a long way, I'm thinking of Rambo, for example, or Baudelaire even, but Rambo more, you know, there's something about his really inventive language, but also his sort of rebellion and his sort of rebellion against uh, authorities of all kinds and this the shards of that that he throws off. And that, I think, keeps him really relevant just to generation after generation um, because his language also was very inventive, but it, it's not an Ivy League or it wasn't an academic, a French academic language at all. And he kind of decried a lot of that in his time, you know? Yeah. So... He stayed relevant, I think, by having a poetry that did speak to people on a human level, on an everyday level, um, even as it was really rich and, and you know, surreal in spots and, and really elaborate. Um, so it makes me, yeah, I feel like that's one of those things that goes around and round a little bit when the poetry <laughs> becomes, you know, becomes out of touch with people. <laughs> you know through academic circles in a way they, it seems to become like it gets uh turned into this thing that focuses so much on just language itself that it sort of like loses communication or or yeah, straight talking that's a great because even the beats like they were i mean you know like burroughs was came from a they, they all kind of came from money and they all went to uh, it right Maybe not. I, th- I think to some degree, I think certainly in his case. Yeah, definitely. But but they all were going to Columbia. But they all somehow seemed to maintain some kind of. Maybe it's because they were vicious junkies, and that kept <laughs> kept them. <laughs> maybe that really keeps you close to the street level of uh, thought. <laughs> right, right. Literally and figuratively, <laughs> close to the street. Absolutely. But there yeah, is something yeah. to say about that, you know. To. Uh, you know, it's like Burroughs may have come from gigantic money, but he certainly did not live a life of a man from extreme wealth. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, exactly. I think there was something about those, those, those guys in that way. And there were women in there too, like Diane, Diane de Prima and, and others. But uh, yeah, that, that really gets me thinking about how, because they were very erudite people too. Like they were very well read and amazingly. So, and they, they knew all the classics and they'd been through all that stuff and absorbed it all. And they were really intent to me on, you know, breaking, breaking new ground. And they didn't want to kind of repeat that, that academic model or wasn't interesting to them. Um, in, in some ways, I mean, I think they, they did idolize a lot of the major poets that had been, uh, uh, coming from, uh, you know, really involved uh, hi-fi circles, if you will, elite circles. <laughs> Who was the, the one but, guy that wrote "Sheltering Sky"? Was a big influence on them, and I can't think now. I can't think of his name. Oh, uh, Paul Bowles. Yeah, Paul Bowles. Paul Bowles, great. He's great. Love Paul Bowles. What is it that uh, pulled you into poetry? Like, what was sparked your interest in that? Man, I think it was like 
Man, I almost think it might have been my mother to some degree because she she wrote a bit and she just seemed to have that sensibility. Um, although I don't remember her really reading, you know, lots of volumes of poetry per se, but the folks were readers. And um, I wonder what if it just kind of went with the music. Um, but I'd always been into reading, so I think it was sort of novels and things first. And then uh, I do remember when I was growing up in, in my Pittsburgh years, uh, as an adolescent or teenager, I fell in with a group of older guys and sort of a group of five or six of us. And uh, there were, everybody sort of played, but some of us were mostly musicians who also wrote. And then the others were kind of writers who played a little bit. And uh, I think it was partially through them. And they were very into the beats uh, and, uh, and others too, like the Thomas Wolf, you know, from earlier, the earlier Thomas Wolf. Not the one who wears white suit. <laughs> Not Tom Wolf, I should say. I wonder if Tom Wolf is pissed about Thomas Wolf. Like, yeah, I wonder. He's he's probably pledged to never read him or something. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, they were. It was essentially that group. I think got me into that because they were into uh, you know Ginsburg and Michael McClure and and so on. And then like you know the liter- more literary rock and roll too. And um, I think that was that was part of it. And, and then I'd just been kind of writing ever since, but I haven't really published much. You know, I had a couple kind of chat, chat books, so-called, earlier. And uh, now it's sort of coming around where some people have been interested also in, in uh, having me do some, some writing, which I think is fascinating because I haven't, as I said, put much out there. But I do always have writing in my bios and stuff like that. So I was curious if people are just like, let's see if this kid can actually write. Putting a writer on his bio. That's uh, <laughs> that's interesting. That it just, but it, I don't know. Maybe this is too hippy dippy, which is something I seem to say a lot on here. But like, but maybe it's just like if you keep generating. I don't know. I feel sometimes I feel like there's like a cosmic steam that comes with it. Like if you just keep doing something, that somehow people pick up on it. Does that sound way too fucking? goofy in the no, head not, not at all <laughs> no no not at all i think that's very observable phenomenon you know because <laughs> anyway. there's been things like that that i just you know i just some tenacious bulldog part of me or something i'm not going to give up on that thing and then it's uh those have always borne fruit you know it's interesting and people i think too when you work on stuff um i've always noticed that eventually people just kind of you know, people are way more intuitive for the most part than they even give themselves credit for, I think. And uh, they just start to pick up that you are working on that stuff or you're somehow involved in that area. It's it's a strange phenomenon. Yeah. I also feel like there's, you could, in Chicago, there's more, that's just a thing. Like there's, like when I was there, that the philosophy of good work always finds its place and finds a home, which... Guess what? Los Angeles, not the case. <laughs> I was afraid of that. <laughs> but because uh, I was like, oh, I'll just do what I do and the, people will like it and they like it, but they don't want to buy it. But that's either. But Chicago, yeah. it seems like there's just a very there's a, a work ethic and a better, uh, I guess, respect for the work. You know, it, we were just talking about this the other day. I think it was me and my wife were talking about this. And uh, I kind of agree with you. It's it's a strange, you know, it's almost strangely receptive in a lot of ways to expression for such a epic city, you know, a lot more so because you always think the bigger cities 
have those avenues, but they're going to be impossible to get to in a way. Right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, like New York, LA and stuff, but for such an epic city that in a lot of ways, to me, things seem like they, uh, getting to avenues of expression seems it's like it's easier in some ways than, than other places. And, uh, yeah, there does seem to be just a, a gung ho thing about like, we don't care how big this thing is. It's just the seed, but let's go with it. And uh, let's see where it goes. And we'll start this little theater thing in somebody's living room. Or we'll start, uh, you know, this series in this bar that doesn't even really want us to be there. We'll, we'll, we'll prove that they need us. We'll prove that they value us. And then, lo and behold, I've seen this happen many times here. where The thing just grows like an acorn and just, you know, becomes a tree. And it, and it just goes on. And a lot of these things, you know, then become these long series is, and, um, I like to think that's probably what happened with second city even, but it certainly has happened with, you know, music series at the hungry brain and, uh, and other people doing like small theater say that's blown up, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I actually started at second city. I was there throughout the nineties. So you were there. Ah, you were there. Okay. So, you, so yeah. Uh, I, and it did, it started basically at university of Chicago as a, you know, an improv group. And then it sort of, which was originally the compass players, but like Mike Nichols was in that group and it became, wow. And of course, See, that's amazing. I did not know that the origins at all. It's pretty incredible. It, and it was, you know, it was the main guy whose name now I'm flaking on, but who started, it was like, it was like, you know, for the work, it was a theater meant to be for the working class. And of course now it's a corporate monolith. <laughs> now it, it, I think it needs to die, but that's besides the point. <laughs> there goes the neighborhood. Well, it's like now it's owned by the guy wow. who owns, um, Grand Theft Auto video game, those video games. Are you serious? Yeah, yeah. Oh they, my God. It's Everything like, ends up like this. <laughs> it does. When I started hanging out there in high school, it was a, mom and pop theater and they had two beers on tap and it was like this small it was a small theater now it's an entire block and but it was like wow. a whole like you they had old style and old style light that was the only beer they had <laughs> and the taps were open all day long and you could just walk in the lobby and pour yourself a beer and which i did at 18 17 16 like without a bartender you just got the beer yourself yeah before my time they would I guess the liquor cabinets were always open and people would just Bill Murray, <laughs> Bill Murray said like, I equate second city with, or I blame second city for me being an alcoholic. He <laughs> <laughs> sounds like he was allowed to be and encouraged to be. <laughs> oh God. Yeah. That's amazing. But, but, but to go back to like your mom and that, cause I, from what I read that you, you, that was your home life was a big influence on you musically. And I can even poetically, like your folks always had, music going especially they did yeah they they had a lot of music uh and then you know my dad and Trump brother played trumpet and i i started playing guitar at age nine so i got wow. that was pretty early you know I'll, I'll often think that's normal and people are like oh i'm uh, i started at 22 and i'm 24 and i'm in this grammy winning band <laughs> like, all right everything about that's that awesome. statement makes me think that band isn't very good <laughs> That's a joke. I'm sure they're. I'm sure they're unique, and they broke great well, ground. That was a little bit big hypothetical, so I can, I can make them great. In this example, they're awesome. So it's a happy ending. Um, but yeah, I mean, usually it's uh, like your teens, mid teens. Yeah. 
Yeah. So yeah, exactly. It's like teens is more common. So that was pretty early. And then I, I just, uh, but yeah, I think the music being around and then my dad took me and my brother to lots of shows and stuff too. And, uh, what kind know. of shows? Well, there was a range, although a lot of it was jazz. Cause that was his big thing. My mom was more into classical, but they both verged on both. And really they centered together on like Broadway and stuff, you know? So that was like the really songy elements of things. And then, uh, so it was a lot of jazz shows and the, it at times for me was tough as a young kid because it was this barrage of information that was chaotic to me at first. So, um, yeah, but lo and behold, he didn't stop doing it. <laughs> I, so, <laughs> Did you, but, I had to adapt and now I love it. <clears throat> Did you see any of the greats as a kid? Well, you know, I did. I did see some, um, and I saw a lot more of the rock greats probably, but also others. But I, I did see some of the jazz greats, like, uh, for example, uh, Art Blakey. Oh, fuck. Messengers in, in Pittsburgh, where he was from, too, which was exciting. Um, I think I went to see, I think I saw as a young kid, like Ella Fitzgerald there, too. Uh, in the park, like big concert in, in outdoors in Pittsburgh. And then uh, I was uh, go. I went to a show. Uh, the Pittsburgh Jazz Festival was was really great in those years, like in the eighties and stuff. And uh, I went to see actually George Benson, but his backup band. And George was a hot player, which people don't always know, you know, because of all of his vocal and pop music. But um, he was a hot guitarist, and uh, his band was uh, Tony Williams on drums, Ron Carter on bass, Herbie Hancock on piano. Damn. And maybe another member and it was so that was amazing to see those people play and and uh and it was really curious to me too because of the uh the concert you know george couldn't resist after they played all this in, um non-vocal jazz music he was like gotta do broadway so he sang, <laughs> so he sang on broadway you know <laughs> which was awesome too um so uh yeah so there was a lot of things like that stan kenton was my dad's big big guy as far as big band orchestra. So we saw him a few times. I love um, big band. And I was into big band in high school as well. Like I was not a normal kid. Like everyone was listening to Led Zeppelin. And I'm like listening. There was a local station that had like big band jazz and I would listen to a lot of that. Oh, that's amazing for a younger person. But you can't really go to high school and be like, man, Glenn Miller, that guy swings. <laughs> it's like you get the shit kicked out of you in my high school for that. <laughs> but Absolutely. did you did you immediately feel like you had a, a knack for guitar? You know, Matt, I did. Yeah, I actually did. I, I think I realized really early on that it was a thing. And I was like, because uh, I prog- I did, I kind of progressed quickly, you know, and uh, I was, you know, had an early teacher or uh, in Rochester. Those were the Rochester years when I was starting. And then um, I had some later as an early teen and teen. But uh, um, I would feel like always that when I would learn some, a few things from these people, I would extrapolate it on my own quite a bit. You know, I could just sort of build the blocks of it into other stuff, you know? Wow, and, that's uh, wild. So that was really something. And then, you know, by, I think when I was 11 or 12, even, I've told this before, but my um, uh, parents had split up and uh, my mom was away certain weekends and stuff. And we, you know, my brother uh, would have some pretty 
raging parties at the house and stuff. We go all hours and they were young you know now i, I said brothers the, did they, the same thing i thought they were like right and you always think they're like 30 but they're like 16 year olds you know like if you're four years younger so i would be like 12 and i and i would play these electric guitar concerts um you know late in the night after wow. the record and stuff so it was they'd be like billy play guitar you know and i was just like had an electric guitar after a couple of years so they were kind of formative to what i'm still doing it's strange that's wild. Yeah, because I was because I was wondering if there was like the path of like, okay, you know, I'm going to play rock and roll and then swing into what you do now. But was that sort of always the, what you were doing, so to speak? Or like more, in, I'm not articulating this well. <laughs> no worries, no worries. I, I've been all around the genre wheels, you know? Yeah. <laughs> of stuff um because i still uh play rock now too but uh but yeah there's like it's in different formats experimental rock and you know and folk and psychedelic folk and and improv stuff too but it was definitely yeah it was centered on you know the early high school bands were rock bands and then and um like i said i still play things with vestige of of um or definite rock and roll now too but uh those early things yeah were based on all of that stuff you know zeppelin and all that music and high school bands you know that were cover based and and uh it was coming from all that the kinks and beatles and and all that stuff so but i always had an ear for the other things because i'd had that listening to that jazz and classical music and and i had some classical lessons as a kid too so it was it was all really cool to me which is what i remember you know it was like i had um, all those pe different people from Miles Davis to Hendrix, you know, to, uh, to Segovia or whoever. Yeah. I mean, viable, viable musical role models, you know? <laughs> yeah. Just even like on a, I to have so much of that, uh, that variety of music playing as a kid, I think, cause we do that at home and I have a five-year-old and she like will request Coleman Hawkins. And I'm just like, fuck, I would. Really? Yeah. Wow. She'll like constantly be like, can you put on Coleman Hawkins? And I'm just like thrilled, but I'm like, and I don't know what she, what path she'll go on. And I know high school, she'll be like, I'm into whatever the fucking shit band is that people are into. <laughs> not, I don't mean to sound judgmental, but I, you know, like, cause she'll listen to Disney stuff, but some of that's great and not to knock that either. But you know, like you, yeah. you get into bad things when you're a kid cause you're, everybody else is listening to bad music. Absolutely, they poison your mind. <laughs> but the fact that she has already has that foundation is wild to me and i'm like okay so who knows what that's going to lead to but to have the reference level i feel like and i had that reference level and it puts you one up on you did too stuff. oh absolutely yeah i think that's the thing too i think whatever she probably gets into later like it won't erase that uh that background yeah and a oh, lot of it for me is like mem like nostalgia my grandparents listened to a lot of big band and like the mills brothers and stuff so that is always been a go-to for me because it is comfort and safety on a psychological. <laughs> yeah, no, I can see that. I find myself returning to a chorus line for that reason. I think not. It's just gorgeous writing and it's and singing, but but those tunes, you know. Yeah, bring me back to a really kind of uh, yeah, just a warm sacred zone of some sort. And uh, yeah, is there a similar? Uh, because you write poetry and I don't know like what the approach you take to either to creating either, but is there a similarity or are they two vastly different approaches you take to create a poem to say a piece of music? Is that a broad fucking question or what? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a good question. 
<laughs> but it's like, we're talking about poetry at all is amazing. <laughs> um, um, yeah, no, I think, I guess if I thought about it, I would, I would say it's similar, you know, I think it is similar because, uh, you know, there's those tunes where you're really lucky in those poems, which is probably really five or 10% only, I think, where they sort of pour out and that's basically pretty much it. You know, you're not going to change much and you kind of do it in one sitting. And it just sort of happens like that. Um, and I think that the general other thing for me with both format forms is that it's, uh, that they are, how should I say, uh, you, you know, I may get all of the raw material of it, but it's going to be edited a lot or, or maybe only a piece, you know, I have the A part for a song, but I need a B and C or something. And then that might be a lot of chiseling, like a little more like crafts, craftsmanship or something. Um, you know, it's inspired, but, and I think, I don't think there's a big dichotomy between what's inspired and what's kind of, you know, chisel chiseling away. Um, cause that editing process can be really inspi inspired. Uh, but yeah, I, so I think a lot, some of them just grow in a fragmented way and putting pieces together and sometimes pieces together that have been, you know, I, I had a piece one time, uh, a riff that was looking for its mate for like a decade, wow. literally a decade, 12 years, maybe I think it was. Finally, I, I had this other thing and I was like, wait a second, those two go together. And then they did. And they went together into this tune called the bystander. And, um, then it was great. Cause you know, then we played it for years. It was like a staple of my live set to play this thing. And it's so uh, wild It's really something, right? Yeah. It's so strange. And do you uh, like, uh does the riff live in your head this whole time or is it, do you have it on a piece of paper as well? Cause I mean, I, I forget things. That's why. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm blessed with a good memory for stuff, but it doesn't, it, it doesn't stop me from freaking out. Like I'm going to forget everything. So um, I typically, I, 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 I've, I've been trying for a long time. What, what's the immortal method for recording things forever. So they'll be, you know, they'll stay in a spot and always be there. Um, but really I try to put it in a few formats if I can, um, record it on phone, even, you know, record a, a file or do a demo. Sometimes, um, I used to write everything actually, I would notate stuff. And I did that for a while with the songs with lyrics too. Um, but at some point it got a little daunting or I didn't feel in that mood to notate, but, um, but I liked when I was doing it and that was a nice way. And I felt like, oh, things are being stored in multiple formats, you know? Yeah. Um, but I do try to do basic demos and just, you know, on a recorder or something and keep it. But also it would just live in my head and I'd re return to the riff every couple months. Yeah. See if I was wondering happened. about that. If there, if there's sort of a, I guess a Zen sort of just like, all right, I'll put it out, you know, put it out there. And if it comes back around and finds a home type of because i've had like ideas i'm like oh yeah that thing and then like while i'm working on something else years yeah. later i'm like oh maybe i could shove this in there and it's like wild yeah it is wild so that's happened you've done that as well you've yeah i mean there's it, there's like a spiritual aspect to that to that to me or that's how it feels it doesn't feel like it's like going Zen or in Buddhist or something where it's just like, all right, I got to fucking stop thinking and let these things fall in place, which is a hard concept. I think for a lot of people to, uh, to conceive <laughs> or yeah. to understand. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. To conceive of not conceiving. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Now I think if I get you right, Matt, you're saying it's, 
you're saying it's uh it's uh something that people they have a hard time letting go and so to let that process happen yes in a way yeah and for like yeah. i guess uh, also for a non-creative person to fully understand what any of that means as well thank you for helping oh, me oh. articulate bill because oh, sometimes like, i just i start with these things and i just then it just becomes about discovery not what i have in my notebook to the right of me me too no absolutely <laughs> me too. and i hope the person you know at the party doesn't just turn away with their drink and start running <laughs> but i like to go off on tangents that i haven't quite figured it out yet that's fun well that's uh, yeah but that's i mean i'm always in a tangent in my head so it's once in a while it just meets the mouth Right. <laughs> no, that's, that's, uh, that makes a lot of sense. And I think that the, the thing with, uh, yeah, I think with that moment is it is something that's so, uh, you know, getting into a space of just letting things happen in a way is like, so, uh, I don't know. So like, uh, mistrusted by our culture in lots of ways, you know, it's, it's, it's too anti-intuitive, like more people should understand it or something. The other good things that happen when you let go of like what you're thinking or what, uh, the, you know, your, your general blueprint for things. Um, cause so much new stuff comes from that, right? Really probably almost everything yeah. comes from space, uh, where you, you know, you're clearly like drawing on stuff. Of course you've been alive, you know, you're drawing on your life, but it's to let it be new. I think, uh, yeah has to involve that. Yeah. I also think like when, with like on a business in the business of show business that, uh, you can't just be like, well, this is the basic idea and uh, give me money and I'll figure it out as I go along, <laughs> which is like how I would uh, uh, rather do everything. It's just like, Oh, it'll work out. I just, you know, like, yeah. but, uh, but you need to know everything now. Well, that's sorry. That's cause it's going to change. Like that's anti-creative to me. Right. No, very true. I mean, I like that thing about, um, and it reminds me of talking about comedy too, but I was going to say first that the, the great quote of Paul uh, uh, Valéry, like the French poet, he had this thing about uh, that uh, your work is not, it's never finished, it's just abandoned. And I love that idea. Because <laughs> as we all know, you can go on forever with something and not finish it, you know, and, and still think that you can sort of tweak it into some perfection it hasn't found yet, but, um, um, things need to be left, you know, it needs to be, but at the same time, like I was thinking when, since you mentioned, we were talking about comedy uh, of, um, isn't that essentially what the people at the bottom, not bottom line, I don't know what it's called, but occasionally you see those, those comedy shows where people just work out their stuff. Oh, yeah. I know the comics do that all the time anyway, but they were like really specifically about that. Yeah. And I love that idea. Like it's sort of a open mic where you don't even totally know the songs maybe yet that well or how it's going to go over. I, I um, Yeah. I, I wish there would, I don't know if there are a lot of rooms, but I had a room like that in Chicago where that the rule was you had 10 minutes and you could do whatever you wanted, but it just couldn't be something you've ever done before. And it was, but, and it was, and it create it's and I married like the stand up scene and the second city and improv scene. So it wasn't just like stand ups; it was stand ups and improvisers and people who were doing theater. So it was this wild, and some poets actually I had some poets do it. And it was just, but it was like it. I think That's sometimes great. people need that a little bit of a place, a safe, a safe place to be like, okay, you're free here, and it doesn't fucking matter. Jump off. And I, it's ha harder to find, or at least it does, it's hard to find in LA. Oh, I see. Interesting. But I did that yeah. in Chicago. 
Yeah. Wow. That's, that's, I wish I had seen it, been there for that. Um, that's, that sounds beautiful. And I love those kind of things. Um, I do think some of the, the open mics that tend to happen in weirder spots tend to veer that way, you know, where there's like the environment itself kind of dictates that, uh, our expectations are different and we're more open here, you know, maybe in an abandoned building, that kind of stuff, (laughs) (laughs) stuff like this, (laughs) but, but then the people care a lot too. Um, and that's, uh, so that's like, yeah, that's interesting. Now, when you said the people were not, that they couldn't do any something, did you mean that they couldn't have a poem prepared or just that they hadn't read it, say, but elsewhere or hadn't performed that piece Hadn't elsewhere? performed it. It had to be something new to them and to the, like, they had to create it specifically for that show. It could be whatever they wanted, but it, and they could invite people, like, they just had 10 minutes to do whatever they wanted. That's, yeah, it, that's so cool. It, it got crazy at times we had fights almost break out <laughs> like it was but we had like a started getting like a huge following and like sold out and it like like lewis black like people started to would be in town and wanted to do the show like it was crazy yeah that's super cool that's that's exactly to what we were talking about earlier about like this scene in chicago and elsewhere hopefully but about uh, things growing from a small seed i feel and, like chicago really just there's, I don't know what it is, but that, cause, and maybe too, back in that time, you know, things were cheaper, like rent was cheaper. So people would be like, Oh, this was a liquor store. Well now it's a theater. Like that just seemed like an easier thing to do in, yes. in the nineties than it is. I don't know what rent is like in Chicago or if, does that sort of thing still go on? Yeah, there are things like that. I think that I know what you're saying though. Like the things do change over and, and make cool, weird, like unusual adjustments to new f- venues. Um, I guess the probably the the only thing that gets in the way of that really is where the whole area has become <laughs> taken over, and the new neighborhood is like not so amenable to a <laughs> venue, you know, <laughs> or doesn't thinks comics are dirty, you know. Um, <laughs> they are, you know, vo- villains or something. <laughs> Um, so that kind of stuff, but it does still seem like that, that, that happens and people do still, still put on things in weird spots and that so, so on, you know, um, I wanted to ask if you, you, cause you said like you have like that riff and then it lives, uh, for uh, 12 years, which is incredible to me, but have, do you have any other pieces that like you can't quite seem to finish, but you feel like there's something very magical or great about it. And you're just like, it's just still sitting there. I do. Yeah. Those are, uh, yeah. You look at them inside, you know, you're like, <laughs> if only you could just be what I know you can be. Um, I do have a couple like that and it's, there's been a couple of those could, you know, and thankfully I write a, a you know, fair amount. I'm fairly prolific, you know, not insanely, but I, I definitely produce. And like, uh, so luckily that's a small amount of, of what's there, but there are some that are, have been kicking around for a while. And I'm just like, um, and so one of the most frustrating things is when you have a part, uh, or like a central part, say, or a chorus, even that really kicks. And you're like, that's great. But I just cannot find what goes leads up to it. Or I can't find what goes around it. Uh, or I can't, the, the you know, this one, I have the, me- the melody and the verse, I don't know, something irks me about it. It's not quite right. And I've, I've been hammering away and I can't, I haven't cracked it. (laughs) (laughs) Do you ever show it to somebody and be like, or do you keep that to yourself? 
Um, I think some of those, I don't know if I've shown them probably because I considered them unfinished. So I didn't, but you know, it'd be interesting to do so because sometimes I think it's valid if you should play something for somebody and they're really knocked out by it. Um, and it might just be appealing to your ego. I suppose maybe someone's knocked out and you're like, you know, you're right, Jim, it is great. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> but cause I want to believe that really bad that it's awesome. But, uh, I think there's, uh, sometimes they do the person though, you know, that could be a wise idea, Matt, because I think sometimes that mirror, you know, can help. And you're like, um, you can say, Oh, there's something that affects, you know, someone here. Maybe there's, maybe if I listen differently, I'll see what there is there. That's good. Um, that kind of thing, you know, you can be expecting something instead of looking at what's there, I think too. Yeah. I feel uh, Oh, sorry, did I interrupt? Yeah, yeah, no, I'm done. I just, I've always been hesitant to, because I also don't want, if I show something to somebody and it's still a work in progress, I don't want to get my, I don't want to be tainted. I don't want them to be like, well, or, or, or give me too much confidence as well. It'd be like, and I think mm-hmm. a lot of times when I've showed things to people, I'm like, I just want to hear you say I'm a genius. Oh, I'm not? <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> then I've clearly given my work to the wrong person. <laughs> but there is that sort of like, what yeah. am I seeking when I'm asking this? Like, I have to, you have to be in the right place. Absolutely, yeah. No, I think that's really that's really smart and good. I I, I want to hold on to that myself, and I like to think I'm a, I'm kind of aware of that to some degree too. Like, am I just asking, you know, hoping that this knocks your socks off, you know, so I can go on my way? And and yeah, I think that's really good. I'd like to be think that I'm really looking for, and and when I am, it seems like then I'm really in the right place to receive the advice if it's good, you know, that something right. might actually change it. Because sometimes people do that, and I I think as I'm getting going on longer, uh, living more, I hopefully becoming more open to that because I have noticed in recent years, um, when I've been able to be open, I'll, I'll actually be able to then employ the, su- the suggestion sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> and it's often made things way better, you know, just even a small thing. Somebody's like, you know, it's like those people who tell somebody writing, you know, I forget the writer, but somebody said, Hey, you know, you're always writing a page and a half too much at the end. And you just, the story's over right here. And this cat was like, I started to do that. And they were right. And then he just started to publish everything. Like everything worked. Isn't that wow. weird? That's and weird. So it was interesting. But I, um, yeah, I think that too, it's, uh, I noticed another thing too. And I don't know if this is something that has affected you, but I've, I'll notice that if you show somebody something in a state that's too raw sometimes or too much of a rough draft or even like a recording that's too raw, like they, there are certain people who just don't, they, they can't hear like a little sketch of something and imagine it as fully manifested. Yeah. So then they're, you know, they're in this position of they really don't like this thing or understand it. It seems too minimal it's just not what, you know, they don't see what it could be at all. So, uh, yeah, it's, you don't get anything out of it and they don't either. I don't know. It's weird. I've also known people who can only view things through their lens. Like they're like, it's like, if, if it's not the way they would approach it, then it's, it's wrong. And I'm like that, which is really fucked up to me. And they're usually narcissistic assholes. (laughs) (laughs) Now that I've I've thought of that, I was thinking of someone specific, but it was like, and I was like, Oh yeah, that's why they didn't, it had to be the way they wanted it to be done. 
Right. Oh, and I, I see now I crossed their name out in my book. I forgot about that. <laughs> but how about when you perform something live for the first time? Is that, is, do some of those same elements come into play? Oh, uh, in terms of like the, how it, uh, feedback, what the feedback means and stuff. Yeah. Like, like yeah. Yeah. I think, I think it does. I did one the other night. I played at Constellation. I don't know if you saw that. Been there. It's a really great venue in Chicago at uh, Western and Belmont up there. That was the old Viaduct Theater. Oh, yeah. I used to no. live nearish that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, that place. Um, and uh, I played a show and it was, a, it was nice attendance and everything was great. And it was... Um, but I'd been thinking about it for, you know, really neurotically for a few weeks, which I never generally do with shows, but it was the first one in like a year and a half and, and a decent sized crowd and stuff. Um, and I, I think I premiered one or two tunes. I hadn't played live from the album with Nathan Bowles called keys, this, this new record, um, that came out in April. And, uh, I've been thinking about that a lot, you know, how's that going to go over? But then I realized when I went to play it, I completely forgot that it was sort of a premiere or the first time I was ever playing it for people. So it was kind of special in retrospect, you know, and, uh, and listening back, it came out well and the reaction to it was good. So that was really kind of gratifying. Um, but I, I don't, um, I don't think I'm cognizant enough to tell you the truth of like when something I'm doing is, uh, is sort of a workshoppy thing or it's a premiere of something, you know, to, to sort of measure the, the vibes in a way. Right. Um, which is why I responded a lot to your, you talking about uh, your venue uh, or your series where you had that, where people could just get up and do 10 minutes because that would be kind of amazing as a songwriter to get up and, and just play your half of a song maybe, or your sketch of a song. Yeah. And you never, you never even see that, you know, at an open mic or anything. And it was also the thing was that people would do things like a stand-up would do a character piece or vice versa. Like it was people trying things that they'd never tried before, like completely out of their comfort zone, which I think is something I learned from actually Mick Napier, who runs the, do you know Mick? Do you know his theater? Oh, that name's familiar. What's the, he, he started the annoyance theater and he was a director at second city for a while, but his, one of his main sort of things that he taught me and everybody was just like, if you're afraid of it, that's what you should do because you shouldn't, you know, just embrace that fear and do something that, because you're probably afraid of that for the wrong reasons. You know, like you get out of your comfort, try something new, expand and then expand yourself that way. You don't have to do it again. Right. Like That's brilliant. I mean, I think that's brilliant advice. It was. And it definitely, Mick was such a brilliant, or I spoke of as if he's past tense, but he's, he's alive and well. <laughs> but he was just such a great communicator and like, and exhibit, like he would also just like, you don't have to know. Like if we didn't know something as a group while creating, he'd be like, we don't have to know. We, we will find it. We'll figure it out, but it's okay not to know. And I think there's so much pretense and creativity of like, I know what's going on. And like, you have to act, you know, there's especially, improv comedy there's a lot of male posturing and i know what's right or there was i don't know if it's yeah. but it's like yeah know, i wonder it's fine to not know and to which is something we're not taught in western society i think 
Again, no, not at all. And that's a really powerful idea. And there's more strength than that, of course, you know, most of the time where you go out and like, you don't have to, you can go out and do performance and with a certain kind of strength, but the strength doesn't have to be, uh, it, it doesn't have to like mask or like erase the vulnerability and uh, going into the unknownness yeah. of it, right? The discovery of it. If it does, that's not, that's not really what you want. It's, so that's, yeah, that's a, I relate to that idea a lot about going out and, and being like, wait a sec, I don't try to cling to some kind of security. Like it's not where I want to go. Um, uh, I don't want to fall apart and with anxiety, <laughs> <laughs> but I've practiced <laughs> and uh, it's you've got your grounding. That's the whole thing, right? All your years of practice, when you think about it and you've even practiced what you're going to do to some degree, probably, or you're just in touch with it, you know, as a daily artist, whatever you do. Um, so you've got this innate kind of grounding. You can trust yourself on that level. So I think that's where it allows you to throw away that security, uh, yeah. for me. And, um, I think that's great advice. I've always found that that to be true, where I eventually had a way better time and got much, much more, uh, performance got a lot deeper when, uh, I let that go, you know? Yeah. All right. But, uh, yeah, such a pleasure, man. I will be in touch for sure. listening to conversations with the wire please become a patreon subscriber if you like also subscribe to the show on your itunes or what have you not and tell your friends about the show that would mean a lot to me as well as uh, go to the link tree in the show notes or the mattdwire.com or conversations with the wire at the instagram and you could learn more about the show buy merch and all those great things thank you very much for listening